My name is Jeff, and it's a privilege to be able to speak with you today. And uh, my wife, Andrea, and I, we had our own Black Friday a business to take care of. A couple months ago, a couple months ago, she told me, you know, Black Friday's coming, and you have some jobs. And I said, okay, I have my jobs, and we, we discussed what those things were that I was supposed to do on Black Friday, which involves, like, you're supposed to do research and get ready for Black Friday. And then when Black Friday comes, because it comes and goes just like that, you're supposed to do your job. So anyway, Black Friday was coming, and Andrea would say to me, have you done your job yet? No, I haven't done it yet. I'm getting ready. I'm, I'm doing my research. Anyway, Black Friday's come and gone. I didn't get my research done. So uh, anyway, I guess it's going to be a, a Christmas minus Black Friday this year. It'll still be OK, won't it? Um, yeah. So speaking of jobs, that's what we're speaking about this morning work. And if I look out across the audience here and I say to you, do you have a job? Did you have a job? Or will you have a job in the future? I probably have covered most of the people in the audience here. You know that thing that gets in the way of life sometimes, the J-O-B, sometimes just interferes with what we would really like to do? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about jobs. We're going to be talking about workplaces and the people who work in them. We're going to be looking at whether God can transform those things. Now, some people say to me here in my job at the church, because uh, you know this is a relatively recent thing for me that I've come to work at the church, and I've had more than a few people who have said to me, you know, Jeff, I don't envy your job. And I kind of wonder, why do they keep saying that to me? Um, I don't envy your job. Well, I have to tell you, I love my job here. I love the opportunity to work with people. I love working on a mission um, that I believe in, that I believe I can make a contribution. I love getting to know all of you. There have been so many that I've gotten to know over the last year and a half since I got into working here at the church. So this is by far a long distance away from the worst job that I've ever had in my life. So do not feel bad for me. Um, but I do want to tell you about the worst job that I ever did have. Now, back in high school, I used to work for a company called Waterfront Catering. And um, now, look at me. Back in high school, that was a while ago. Uh, back in high school, I worked for Waterfront Catering. And these wa this was the time where it uh, didn't look so spiffy as I look today. Well, maybe we did in the day. But we wore burgundy tuxedos with the black velvet trim, the black line down the legs, and the frill white shirt, along with the bow tie. Can you picture it? Anyway, that was waterfront catering. And we would uh, get uh, hired to come to the Lions Club, the Civitans, uh, somebody's 50th anniversary, this type of thing. We'd get hired. And it would be, you know, the table down the center with the gelled salads and the meat trays and the 75-pound hip of beef carved at the end. I think banquets have improved since then. But anyway, that was banquets, banquets back in the day. And back in the day at Waterfront Catering, I made $4 an hour. And I really felt pretty good about $4 an hour back then because I looked at some of the other things that I could have done, and it was less than $4 an hour. So we felt really good about that. And then we felt extra good one day when our boss called us up and said, I have a special job for you guys. And today for this special job, I'm going to pay you triple your normal wage. And we're like, $12 an hour? We weren't smart enough to ask what the job was. Wouldn't that have been a good idea? Anyway, we didn't ask. We just hopped into our cars, got over there, and said we're here for our $12 an hour job. 
So anyway, we showed up, and our boss lived in a house that was one of these, uh, I think you call it a raised bungalow. So you come up some stairs to the front door, and then you go up or down. The house has multi-levels in it. And so he takes us down into the lower level where there's a crawl space where the ceiling is about this high. And in that crawl space was the drain for the sewer. And um, the sewer had backed up in his house. And so he said, um, there are the shovels, there are the garbage bags, and there is about this much smelly brown stuff. And he said, uh, please clean that up. And of course, we probably were like not smart enough to realize, I don't even think I can accept this job. Uh, but we accepted the job, and one by one, we got in there, crawled in there with the shovels, filled the bags, and that was the worst job ever! Um, anyway, that ranks up there. But you know, I have to say, that job lasted about three hours. It didn't last a week. It didn't last a month. It didn't last five years. So I felt, I consider myself sort of lucky. And some of you might feel like, oh, I have a worse job ever, but it's been going on for years. So let's talk about that this morning. So if you're a guest here today, you wouldn't call yourself a Jesus follower or a Christian, you might be saying to yourself, this topic that you're talking about is kind of bogus to me because I don't even believe that how God could impact a workplace. I don't even believe that there is such a thing as that kind of a concept because you know that Christians are only good on Sundays. And so I want to ask you this morning, I just want to invite you to say, you probably are a person who either has a job or had a job or will have a job, and you might find that some of the things that we're going to talk about today apply to your workplace, and I'll promise you that there'll be some takeaways for you. So let's start at the beginning this morning. And by the beginning, I mean at the beginning of the Bible. So in the book of Genesis, we're going to introduce you to a couple of words here. So in the book of Genesis, we find the creation story. And when the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, there's a Hebrew word I'd love to introduce you to this morning, and it's this word, bara. And so when it says on the first day this, and on the second day that, and all the way to the end of the sixth day, when it says that God created, this is what he did. He bara. He created by cutting out or carving something that was then seen in creation. On Friday night, a few of you uh, were here, maybe 50 or 60 of you, we were here too, for the missions auction. That was a lot of fun, and now I have a garage full of stuff I don't need. Um, but anyway, maybe that's my Black Friday. That's perfect. Um, anyway, um, one of the people in the church here donated a slab of mountain ash that was about 10 feet long, about this wide, and three inches thick. It was a beautiful piece of wood. And Dixie and Weba Crozen, are you guys here? Yeah, I see you right over there. They bought that piece of wood at the missions auction, and uh, Dixie said, I have a vision for this. And uh, she said that they're going to build a headboard out of that beautiful piece of mountain ash. And I said, oh, I'll be, I'll be expecting an invite to your house in a couple months to see how that looks. Anyway, I can imagine you're going to kind of create something out of that piece of wood. You're going to sand it. You're going to finish it. You're going to put it on the wall. This is something of the idea of what God did when he created now, at the end of the creation story, after creating all of these mountains, uh, stars, planets, 
vegetation, water, and so forth, it says that God created humanity. And here's another Hebrew word. It is the word yasar, to fashion, to form, to shape. That's a different word, and that's how God creates humanity, uh, the first man and the first woman. We get the idea of a potter kind of shaping a vessel in a special way when he creates humankind. After this, God says he looked at all of his creation, all the physical elements and the people that he had created, and he said, it is very good. It's kind of like my dentist friend who, he's, be, he's uh, getting on in age, so he's been a dentist for a long number of years, and he said, Jeff, he said, I've gone to work for 35 years, and he said, I can't remember a single day that I didn't look forward to going into work. Can you imagine being a dentist for 35 years and not having a single day like that? He delights in his work. It's kind of like John Dobby uh, painting the perfect line at the ceiling and saying, ah, that is very good. It's kind of like Janice Hawley creating the perfect dish and then putting the picture on Instagram. It's kind of like Zach Van Esch creating the perfect landscape design and saying, I love it. That is perfect. And God delights in his own creation. I sometimes like to delight in lawn perfection, my annual pursuit. I've told you about that before. And so as a reflection of himself, God then takes his first human beings and he places them in a garden that he planted. And he says, please take care of my garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And so this is starting to set up the idea. Let's think about this. He created, he formed, he planted a garden, and he asks his human creations to go into the garden and to work in the garden and take care of it. We get the picture that God is active. God is a doer. God is a maker, and that he creates work, and work is good. Work is a reflection of God, and workers are to be a reflection of God. Work is joy-filled. Work is not painful. Furthermore, in eternity, when you go all the way to the end of the Bible and you contemplate what will happen at the end of all time, there's a clear indication in there that all of us are going to work. We're not going to sit on clouds and just think about things for all of eternity. We're going to be working, and it's good. And some of you here today, you might, you might be saying to yourself, Genesis, God creating. I rejected that back in grade 9 science class. Um, that doesn't even exist. That book doesn't even make sense. Well, I want to ask you to stick with us a little bit further and see if the following things that we get into about work ring true for you. Because something happened in that garden. Our human ancestors began to decide that they knew better than God that they could make better and wiser decisions than God, that going their own way wasn't going to hurt them, wasn't going to have any negative consequences. And down through time, human beings have been doing the same thing over and over again. And a theme gets introduced right at the beginning of the Bible here, and it's the theme of power and control. We're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning, but power and control gets introduced into the human story. Let's look at what happens here in Genesis 2.17. God says, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. And Adam and Eve learn that if they are to eat from this fruit, they would become like God. And they begin to take upon themselves the power and control 
for their own destiny and for the world around them that rightly belongs only to God. And that may sound strange to you that that's what actually occurred back then. It might be like, I'm not sure if that's really what occurred. But look at what happens when power and control leaves God's hands and enters human hands. Some things happen. I put some dot, dot, dots with these to say that I skipped some words in the scripture, but these are some of the things that start to happen in the human story right after this. God says, I'll greatly increase your pain in childbearing. That's kind of interesting to me, by the way. He never said it was going to be pain-free. He just said he was going to greatly increase your pain. I don't think I want to talk anymore about that. Um, anyway, he says, he, referring to your husband, he says to Eve, your husband will rule over you. This was not God's preferred way that men would rule over women, but this is something that gets introduced. This domination factor, this power factor, gets introduced into the marriage relationship. He says, the ground will be cursed because of you. Next slide. And through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life, and by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food. So think about it. I'll greatly increase your pain in childbearing. Men will rule over women. The ground's going to be cursed. It's going to be painful toil. Hmm. Notice that before this moment, power and control was never a theme, but it gets introduced into the human story. So I ask myself and ask you this morning, did God actually cause those things to happen to humans? Like, I didn't do anything. God did it to me. God gave me this painful toil. God gave me this man to rule over me. Did God do that? Or was that a natural consequence of human choice and action? And that's one of those things that as you read through the Bible and you get more familiar with the Bible story, that you'll see these occurrences where it says God did, and then it says that humans did, and you find yourself asking the question, well, did God do it or did we do it? And we find ourselves recognizing that in the scriptural story, there are consequences to our choices and, consequent, and, and that God is also involved in those things. And what's most important to learn is that introduced into the human story were these consequences. So work itself, which was once good and perfect and untainted, became tainted by the human tendency to make self-oriented decisions, decisions that were going to have negative consequences for self and for others. And not just in the workplace, but in all of life. I love how the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes puts it. And you'll find that in Ecclesiastes in around the middle of the Bible. It's a great book to look at someday. Um, Ecclesiastes says this, All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. And at this point I'm going to introduce you to two more Hebrew words, and that's the end of the Hebrew lesson. When he says his work is pain and grief, Here's the first word, kas. His work is anger, provocation, vexation. And some of you are sitting there going like, that's what I'm going to walk into tomorrow morning. Anger, provocation, and vexation. That's what your workplace is like. And then he says about life, when he says it's meaningless, it's this word hebel, which means fleeting, vaporous, futile, enigmatic, profitless. 
and that all of life started to take on these characteristics. Can you get a vision for that of how that consequence that was in, uh, introduced into the human experience started to make work a vexation, started to make life itself seem futile? And then down through history, this has been introduced into workplaces. So let's start to talk about the modern workplace. And I want to ask you to think about this in relation to the story that we've just been talking about. Let's talk about these two words, power and control, again, in the modern workplace. In the modern workplace, we often have this picture of the triangle. That's the suitable management structure for work, isn't it? With the CEO or executive director or president, whatever the title might happen to be, at the top, sort of in charge. That's the preferred management structure these days. It's often the case that that person is a man. And as if it is somehow normal and natural that it is man's natural aptitude to lead and everybody else to follow the one single leader. And the modern workplace in the power and control dynamic is uh, characterized by my ideas trumping your ideas, that domination and competition are normal things in the workplace. And so you have people who dominate and you have people who are dominated. And that somehow has become a normal, acceptable way of working these days. Agendas are present in the workplace. Yes, some of you are agreeing to that. And every single day, manipulation and half-truths are used to accomplish self-serving ends. It's kind of like the Darwin concept of the survival of the fittest, where weaker members, instead of being embraced and somehow included in the workplace, they're weeded out of teams in the modern workplace. In some modern workplaces, workers are paid so little that work, which once was joy-filled, meaningful, purpose-filled, has become replaced by the concept of the working poor. And how did that ever come to be? I love the way author Henry Cloud puts this. Henry Cloud says that in every organization, you have three different kinds of people. He says you have wise people, foolish people, and evil people. The wise fools and evil. Some of you might have seen this um, before in Henry's books, but he talks about how in organizations there are truly evil people. And evil people, he says, if you're thinking, well, there's no evil people at my workplace, or maybe you're saying, yeah, there's a handful of them at my place. Evil people are bent on destruction. Evil people are the kind of people who say, I'm going to bring this place down. I'm going to bring my boss down. I'm going to bring my coworker down. This workplace is evil, so I'm going to bring it down. They're bent on destruction. I love what Henry Cloud says. He says, the solution to evil people is lawyers, guns, and money. Lawyers, guns, and money. And can you imagine that in the modern workplace, that you might have to get to the place where you have to say to your employee, I can no longer speak to you. We will only be able to speak through my lawyer. Can you imagine that in the modern workplace, you might have to say, we are in danger from our fellow employer, and so our fellow employee, and so we'll have to call the police to come in to deal with the situation at our workplace. Can you imagine that in the modern workplace, you have to say, this is such a problem that we're going to have to pay money to make this problem go away. Lawyers, guns, and money. And some of you know what it's like to be on the wrong end of power and control. Sexual harassment is another reality in the workplace. Wow, what a message I came for today. 
Are you with me still? It was in October 2017 that Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein was accused of being a serial sexual predator in the workplace. That was just October 2017. In the 13 months since that announcement went public, Bloomberg reports that 425 other public figures, celebrities, well-known people, business leaders, public figures have been publicly accused of sexual misconduct, a broad range of behavior that starts with rape, goes through lewd comments at work, and abuse of power in the workplace. That is more than one publicly reported case of that every day since October 2017. And can you imagine how many cases are unreported? They weren't famous people, celebrities. Here's how Bloomberg puts this as a result. Hundreds of alleged bad actors, the vast majority men, were fired, resigned, or faced other professional consequences. Some have apologized for specific actions or acknowledged vague, hypothetical offenses in more general ways. Others have held firmly to their jobs, their offices, their star power. Many have denied any wrongdoing or questioned the motives of their accusers. Google admitted this fall that it had paid its former executive, Andy Rubin, Andy Rubin he was the inventor of Android, the Android operating system, that it had paid its former executive, Andy Rubin, $90 million to leave the company and resign over credible allegations of sexual assault in the workplace. And can you imagine that something that's so beautiful, the Android operating system, that probably a bunch of us sitting here today, you've got it in your pocket right now in your phone, Something that was so beautiful and so powerful that was created at the same time that that was occurring, that was occurring at the workplace. And some of you know what it's like to be on the wrong end of sexual harassment in the workplace. I want to ask you, can you feel the echo? Can you feel the echo back to those original humans in the garden and those self-oriented de decisions that were made that have continued to have consequences. It's like a tree, a seed that was planted back then that is still bearing fruit today. Four years ago, my wife and I moved into a new house. It was new to us, it wasn't new, but a new house. And I'm in the garden in the back, there were chives. I hate chives, I really hate chives. Do you have chives in your place? They're, they're hard to get rid of, believe me. Um, I've tried Roundup. I've tried just pulling them up. I've tried everything. You can't get rid of chives. They just keep coming up all over the garden. And power and control and sexual harassment and other things in the workplace, they're like chives. They just keep coming up. These seeds keep going. That's why I love the Bible why I'm drawn to God's way of life, because it's so different than the way that I normally live my life. I'm so drawn to a life that's lived in response to God, and I'm, it's like I'm pulled forward by a magnet saying, is there something more than what I normally see? One more thing about the modern workplace, racism and sexism. Racism and sexism in the workplace. A consistent favoring of one person over another under the guise of a better fit with the team when underneath is the ugly practice of racial prejudice.
or that in far too many workplaces, women simply aren't paid the same wage as men for the same work performed. And some of you know what it's like to have been or be on the wrong end of racism or sexism in the workplace. Why are workplaces so toxic like that? How did it ever come to be that something that God created to be so good, so fulfilling, so personally beneficial could become toxic like that? And by the way, we shouldn't think that this doesn't happen in the church. It actually happens in the church, but it's actually worse in the church in some ways because some of those behaviors are justified as somehow being biblical. And some of you that are here this morning that are skeptical about faith, you're saying, that's why I'm not a Christian because I see Christian leaders behaving in the same way as the people in the company, only sometimes putting this layer on about it being biblical. You know why that happens in the church? Because people are in the church, and people down through history have continued to make these decisions for self against others. But some of you are here this morning because you're just hungry enough. You are just desperate enough. You are just sick and tired enough of the world around you that you've come to see, is there a better way? What does God say about all this? I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it when he um, says in the book of Romans, let's skip ahead to that right there. For I do not understand what I do. For to what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Paul actually says we're a slave to sin. We're literally bound to these behaviors that are not what we want to do. What we want to do, we don't do, and what we don't want to do, we do. So this is reality. But what if it didn't have to be? What if there was a way of living? What if there was a type of transformation available that could transform us as workers and our workplaces that would be so different than our natural tendencies, a way of living that would transform not only us, but also our workplaces and our world. What if the word redemption wasn't just a word? What if it was not just a thing to believe as a Christian, a Christ follower? What if it was true that there could be a redeemed person and a redeemed workplace? What do you think it could mean when the Apostle Paul says this? The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Notice the reference at the bottom, Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. The previous slide was from the end of chapter 7 when Paul says, what I want to do, I can't do or don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. And then he goes right on to say, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And what could it possibly mean that if we were to read the rest of Romans chapter 8, we'd discover that Paul uses the word spirit 21 times. What if a kind of witness could be out there in which workers were in workplaces living by this law of the Spirit, 
in such a way that in ways large and small, workers stood against power and control in the workplaces. Workers stood against racism, sexism, and sexual harassment in the workplace. What if agendas, competition, and manipulation, and half-truths in the workplace were not represented by anyone that was a Christ follower? Can you imagine the power of that in the workplace? How different that could be in the workplace? How magnetic it could be for people to say, what is going on with those people? What if followers, in work, followers of Jesus in the workplace stood for open cultures where truths were spoken, lies were exposed, wrongs were made right, and peace was gained? Not because we have policies that tell us it's a good idea, by the way. We have all kinds of policies here at the church. You probably do in your workplace, too. Yes, I won't do that. No, I won't do that. Um, yes, I'll always live like this. I'll always... You, you probably have policies like that in your workplace. How's that working out over there? Um, not because we have policies, but because the Spirit is changing us. Friends, this could be a game changer. And I want to ask you, can you get excited about that kind of a workplace? Let me give you a clue as to how I believe that that could happen. I'm going to look at a passage here from the New Testament in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. Now, this passage says, to the elders among you. So you might be sitting and say, oh, great, I'm off the hook. I'm not an elder, I'm not even that old. Um, so it doesn't apply to me. But I want to ask you to open your mind, open your categories a little bit here. Elders are the people within the church that are charged with its, the responsibility of giving leadership to the church. And here is a set of instructions for what elders ought to be like in the church. But I want to ask us this morning to draw some lessons here from this, to say, could there be some secrets in this list that us as workers and in our workplaces could be the seeds of transformation. This list that we're going to look through is a representation of what it looks like to live by the Spirit in life, but also in the workplace. Now, if you're a partner of Lakeside, and by the way, currently we have, I think the number, because I just saw the list, was about 405 partners we have here at the church. We sent all 405 of you an email, and if you said, oh, I didn't get a partner email this week, check your email. If you missed it, come talk to me. We'll make sure that you get it. We'll make sure that you get a physical copy of this. But we send a letter to all of our partners, as we do from time to time, asking for nominations of other partners who would be good potential elders in the church. And we'll be looking forward to you um, submitting your names, uh, your nomination people for that. And by the way, if you're like, I didn't get a list and I'm not even a partner, it's a great example of why you ought to be a partner because you'll get these letters and you'll have the opportunity to nominate other elders. By the way, I'm responsible to the elders. They are my boss. And I love that. I love working with Walter Scott, and Jim Lowe, and Rose McQueen, and Trevor Dick, and Noel Baker, I think you're over here somewhere. Did I cover them all? And Weba Crozen. Yeah, love working with all of you and reporting to you on the work that I do here. But anyway, let's get back to the list. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. And I've highlighted some words in this list. And I want to ask you to think about these words. What if we were like shepherds in the workplace? Now, I don't know anything about being a shepherd. I hope I never really learn. Um, it's not my preferred career path. But I'm pretty sure that shepherds do not beat sheep. 
um, with their staff. I, I think I'm I'd be pretty safe in saying that. What if shepherds was a, a mindset, a posture of our behavior in the workplace, of God's flock that is under your care? What if we took our approach to the workplace of being caring for other people? What if we watched over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve? What if the approach of Jesus' followers in the workplace was people that are eager to serve, people that don't lord it over those entrusted you? And let me just stop there for a sec. Not lording it over people. When you think about who you should nominate as a person to be an elder here at Lakeside, please do not nominate somebody that lords it over other people because we're not interested in elders that lord it over people. We're not seeking rulers and people to be ruled. We are seeking people that care for others, that shepherd, but back to the workplace. What if it was people that were examples to the flock? And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to, the el to your elders. In um, some of the, what would you call it, Bible versions that are um, not gender neutral, it says, young men, be submissive to your elders. Submission is not just a concept for women. Submission is the behavior of all Christ followers. And we are to display that in the workplace, in all of life. Let's get back to the list. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. What if we were humble? What if we really began to say, I'm expendable. It's not all about me in the workplace. What if, because I lived this way in my workplace, people really began to say, I would love to work for that guy. I would love to work for her. It would be amazing if they were my boss. What difference would it make in your workplace if on the day that your coworker showed up late because their child was sick, and they had to make alternate arrangements for care on that day, if instead of resenting the fact that you had to show up on time and they got to be late, what if you cared for that person? What if before you sent that harsh email off to somebody, you thought about the impact that those words were going to have on that person, and you asked yourself this one simple question, what would Jesus do? What if instead of you and your coworkers fighting over commissions, the discussions instead focused on generosity because the company was doing so well? What would it have been like if instead of trying to justify why you didn't get your responsibilities done, you just simply owned it? and said, yeah, I didn't get it done and I need to do better. What would it look like if instead of domination, we began to learn what submission looks like in the workplace? And what would happen if it became the norm that Jesus' followers in the workplace lived these radical lives? It would be magnetic. I play squash up at uh, Movadi on Stone Road. It's one of the great um, fitness things that I enjoy doing. And uh, believe me, that is a non-church crowd. Um, so the other day, I was playing squash against this guy. I'd never met him before. Vince was his name. And um, he says, like, right after I get there, he goes, what do you do? 
and I said, uh, I'm a minister up at the church on, uh, on um, uh, Conservation Road, and we have another church downtown. It's called Lakeside Church. Have you ever heard of it? And he goes, yeah, he says, I, I have heard of it. You guys, the, you sing those songs up there. I'm like, what, what is he talking about? Anyway, that's what, that was the first thing out of his mouth. You sing those songs up there. Anyway, he launches into this series of expletives, which I won't repeat here, and which ended with the sentence, you will have a hard time with me. And uh, you'll have a hard time with me. Yeah, he says, you'll have a hard time convincing me. And I say, Vince, come on. I said, at least come at Christmas time. We'll have Christmas services. You'll love it. He says, my mother would kill me if I came. No, I said, she won't. She'll probably love it when you come. Anyway, what if it became known that workers in Vince's workplace were people who lived these radical lives? And instead of saying what he said to me, that you'll have a hard time, what if it was like a magnet drawing himself? To live by the Spirit is to live this kind of life. And God is in the business of making all things new. Let's look at this verse that was our theme verse for the series here. It's Romans 12, verse 2. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. I'd like to invite the band to come back up. In eternity, we're going to work. But guess what's going to happen in eternity? Power and control is going to be returned to its rightful owner. It won't be us. And it won't be workplaces like we've talked about. It's going to be working humbly under God's mighty hand. And I want to give you a moment this morning. We've been doing this during this series. Just take a moment near the end of the message to ask God, have I been the kind of person that has leveraged power and control in the workplace in ways that I shouldn't have? Have I seen that in my workplace? Have I not been learning to live by the Spirit in my workplace? I want to just give you a moment to think about this while our band starts to get ready and lead us into one more song. It's been an amazing series called Transformed, and we're saying, yeah, what would a transformed person look like? We've looked at it in relation to all these different areas of life, our mental health, our physical health, our vocations, our finances, a few others that I forgot along the way. But we've been looking at being uh, transformed in all these different ways. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your heart and your mind. After our service, we'll have our prayer team people up front here and invite you to come and just ask someone to pray for you and say, God, will you make me that kind of person in the workplace? Will you make me that kind of an employer? Yours and my workplaces transformed, no matter if it's a factory or an office, a farm or a coffee shop, a nonprofit or a government office, and yes, even a church. the best is yet to come. I don't know what kind of a miracle you need, what you're seeking God for. You can come up and be prayed for about that kind of thing. We don't promise miracles in the church, but we know the miracle giver. We know the miracle maker. And so I commend you to him this morning. I commend you as workers and workplace leaders 
to live these lives that are full of the Spirit in every way that you do it. And I commend you to the transforming God. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but be remolded in your mind. Have a great week. We will see you next week when we launch Let There Be Light. Pastor Mark will be back teaching again, and we look forward to seeing you then. Have a great week.